0: Labor Wave Radio and Opening Space for the Radical Imagination presents The Political Party After the Revolution with jean Paulo
1: When we look at the history of the, the political parties in the U.S., these parties are actually pretty consistent with their founding mission of representing elites. Who do we want this party to be autonomous from and who do we want it to be responsive to? We have to be very clear that it's people's struggles and movements and unions that it's responsive to, but we want it to be autonomous from elite interests, from existing bureaucratic formations within movements and nonprofits that we know. Everybody feels like you can't have Trump again, but having this kind of life and death thing continues to lead us to greater and greater compromises all the time. And I guess what I like about your question about the party after the revolution is like, might we have the freedom to rethink our structures of political representation in a way that doesn't feel like if we don't sort it out exactly this minute the world will end or the right wing will win.
0: pleased to present the second episode of After the Revolution, which is an ongoing collaborative miniseries with opening space for the radical imagination. We will structure each of these conversations in a similar fashion where we begin with an analysis of why the topic at hand is important to consider, then what does it look like after the revolution, and finally we'll conclude with how do we get there. This episode is on the political party, after the Revolution, with our guest, Jean-Paulo Baiocchi. Jean-Paulo Baiocchi is Professor of Individualized Studies in Sociology at New York University, and he directs the Urban Democracy Lab. He's also the author of the book We the Sovereign, which explores the possibilities of bringing about a radical utopia of popular self-rule. We spend the hour with Paolo Baiocchi exploring these themes and ask, what will the political party look like after the revolution? Part of the impetus for organizing this miniseries is the recognition over how capitalism, in all of its oppressive forces, has also colonized the collective imagination around what forms of society are possible to attain or even permissible to dream about. This is not the product of shallow imaginations, but rather imaginations full of syndicated representations and patchwork ideologies intended to have us believe that there are no viable alternatives to what currently exists. But to imagine such a static state of affairs must remain permanent is to be seduced by pure fantasy. And it's the contention of this mini-series that we can inspire a different imagination. If you enjoy this show, we ask that you please follow us on our various platforms like SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and like and share our content with your friends and comrades. We offer all these episodes for free. We also transcribe our episodes. And all of the work is the product of one person, editing, producing, advertising, and sharing. So please, if this content inspires you, we hope that you will share it with comrades so that it can also inspire them and continue to listen to our show. Also, if you have recommendations or suggestions for topics that you would like to explore after the revolution, please send us a note at laborwavenews@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're very responsive to any and all requests for episodes. We begin this conversation by asking Jean-Paulo Bayacchi to please explain the distinction between political parties from what our imaginations lead us to believe are the only forms of representation available in a capitalist so-called democracy. When we use the term political party, I anticipate a lot of listeners automatically think of things like the Democrats and Republicans. So what do you mean when you're talking about political parties? And why is it important to consider the significance of the political party today?
1: The political party is a really vexing question for me personally and politically, and it has been for a long time. And when I was doing the book, We the Sovereign, I realized that the political party question was unavoidable, which is why I think it's vexing. And I wanted to push people beyond... Republican Democrats, beyond DSA, beyond the Workers' Party of Brazil, beyond the MAS, beyond the Zapatistas, to thinking about a structure of of political representation. We have to have one. My sense is when we're part of movements and unions and popular struggles, there are things that political parties are a structure that will represent us before the for the political system that can't be done otherwise. The reality, of course, and this is a conversation I, I've had many times when I presented the book, and this comes up all the time, the reality is we don't have a perfect example of a political party on the left. Every political party that we can think of You know, the story, the the stories that I I lay out in the book for the MAS, for the Workers' Party uh, of Brazil, are roughly similar. Things begin well and very democratically. And then, because the party participates in this political system that we have, it winds up being sort of captured in some way. Party people become bureaucratized, parties become more conservative, parties sort of run away from the movements and the struggles in some way, and we wind up disappointed with them. So anyways, to get back to your question, I would say we need to find a way to imagine some structure of political representation that does the things that political parties would do, but our imagination for it or what it might be simply cannot be anything that exists at the moment in the United States
0: going into more detail about how parties become corrupted and captured by state power I'm wondering if we could zoom out and just have a thought experiment about what a better political party could look like how does it look without that kind of corruption without that influence of the state like what is like a, I guess this is maybe a strange question but what is the here a political party look like in your imagination if we could sketch that out
1: yeah so so I, I love that question. so first of all, let's think about the things that would be useful or we need a political party to do. It offers us some kind of formal representation in the system as we have it. It will play a transformative role it'll help us to get to the other side, right it could it should be a revolutionary party. political party. Should be able to help us make alliances between struggles, along struggles. I think, too, that political parties, there's this phrase of Antonio Gramsci that I used in the book about the concrete fantasies, which is political parties, I think, should be in the business of helping us think in a transformative way, doing imaginative policy prescriptions for the world that we want, the kind of the thought work that I think is necessary, economic analyses, uh, environmental uh, projections, and these kinds of things. So th- that's the things it needs to do. And then when we look at what political parties have done, or if political parties that we, we think of as having been more virtuous at one point, they do many other things that are not useful. So for example, I don't think political parties ought to be creating cadres of party officials. I don't think political parties should be in the business of censoring movement. I don't think political parties should be in the business of directing, right? This is a, a vision of a political party, I think, that does some of the good functions and not the other ones. And, you know, when we started to have the email conversations, you and I, what might this look like one idea i had uh, you know we can talk about some of the some of the things that did work in the examples i use in the book one thing i didn't talk about is that maybe political parties ought to have a sort of a term limit i think maybe political parties ought to be much more temporary than we imagine them to be maybe a party that you know parties outlive their usefulness for movements and they need to be Refounded or scrapped, and something else needs to start. I, I think one of the problems, one of the clear problems that we see in leftist parties becoming more rigid, more hierarchical, is that you know, maybe they last too long. Maybe you know, parties develop their own internal interest as bureaucracies, or as captured by certain kinds of elites, and they become unable to be responsive to the movement.
0: So it sounds like you're suggesting that the political party has to be provisional in order to be successful in the ways that we would want for like leftist emancipation.
1: Yeah. So this is one of the things that's emerged in in the conversations I've had since I wrote the book. Maybe next time we invent a political party that's going to speak for us as movements and do things that we cannot do as movements by ourselves, maybe when we invent it, we have to put a term limit on it, you know. I don't know what that is, five years, 10 years, and then we have to have something else. It, it needs to be provisional, I think.
0: I want to get into a conversation about what could a political party look like after the revolution. But before getting there, I just want to maybe flesh out some of these details more about your conception of a political party and how it's distinct from what people might imagine currently. So, for instance, in the United States, uh, we constantly hear calls for like a third party, the Green Party. Bernie should break from the Democrats and become an independent party or something like that. How are you talking about political parties as distinct from that conception of a party?
1: So there's this very nice phrase from Bolivia, from the early days of the MAS, which was the idea of an instrument of popular sovereignty. Parties ought to be an instrument we know when we think of parties, first of all, they, they can't be a thing unto themselves. They provide the functions that we need them to do, which political representation in, in the system, some of this coordination, some of this strategy thinking, it can't be a project by itself. It, this idea of the party as an instrument of struggles, uh, an instrument of movements, an instrument of unions, in the, in the long-term goal of uh, revolutionary transformation, I think, is what we're talking about. The question of whether Bernie should break from the, the Democratic Party is almost besides the point if he's going to create something that is just a, a more lefty Democratic Party, right? It I, We're really thinking about something else. You know, as a sidebar, the reason I wrote the book is that I, I feel that a lot of people in movements. In unions, a lot of people younger than myself have a tremendous skepticism of the idea of political party. And I share the skepticism, and I will agree that most of the examples we come up with are bankrupt, but I think we need to think of something that can perform those functions. I, I think our enemies are happy when we are not participating in that struggle. Now, the struggle in the political structure that exists perhaps is not even the, the main goal, but it's, it's a struggle that we cannot abandon.
0: Well, and highlighting the significance of an effective political party today, I wonder what your thoughts are amid this current crisis that we're experiencing in real time, which is the coronavirus pandemic. How does this reveal, this crisis, how does it reveal this importance of having a powerful political party to do those kinds of functional things and those coordinating efforts that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So, so for example, in the you and I were speaking earlier of the strengthening mutual aid networks that exist and the emerging ones that are joining with different kinds of struggles and movements. Right. If we had such a thing in place, we would be able to get the sort of transformative vision some of the coordinating work you know for example the amazon workers right now in new york city in the in the warehouses are in a pitch struggle against amazon because of the safety conditions in the warehouse people work in terrible to conditions to uh, begin with amazon is an anti-union terrible employer and but they're doing great business at the moment and they don't care that people are getting sick in the warehouses and those warehouses are going to be terrible disease vectors at the same time there are pit struggles again sticking with the example of New York of people fighting for a rent moratorium during this crisis right we should not be paying rent to these corporate landlords as a minimum kind of provisional social security so that people don't wind up suffering uh, even more a political party if we had such a political party, would be coordinating those struggles, keeping each other informed, and then help us act strategically and in solidarity uh, with each other. When we look at the left of the Democratic Party, some of the progressive members have been holding calls with organizers, sharing strategy. And that's a glimpse of what that would be, but it's not what we're talking about. We're, We're, you know, this kind of alternate coordinating structure that's responsive to, that's an instrument of these movements and struggles.
0: So let's talk about what it might look like after the revolution. Like we have this political party that has the power to win. What does that political party look like? And I am curious if you can maybe elaborate more because some of what you're talking about earlier it reminds me of this conception of like withering the state away. And it almost sounds like you're saying the political party needs to be powerful enough to then start withering its power away. So what does it look like after the revolution? And what does that withering of the political party mean?
1: I've been struggling with this question a lot because our horizon, usually as leftists, we think of the party as the tool that's going to help us get to the other side. But then you know, the the first question I had, would there be a political party after the revolution? And then I think, yes, I think people will still have interest. People will still need to politically organize, even if we have no private property, there will be lots of things to contest. And there will be lots of things to struggle over. So I, I think for sure, there needs to be that kind of structure on the other side. You know, I think that party or parties maybe might represent different, different kinds of interests than the ones that we see now. In a classless society, what kinds of interests and struggles might there be? I can imagine a political party wanting to represent the youth and, you know, the, the rule of the middle-aged people who for somehow wind up on top. I can imagine a political party wanting to talk about or wanting to push the agenda of uh, abolition after the revolution. I can imagine a political party uh, wanting to represent and uh, push the f- different kinds of feminist struggle after the revolution. So I, I imagine something like that. The people who have written about the political party after the revolution don't have great imaginations about it. You know, the, the, one of the people who's a touchstone in the book is, uh, for me, is Antonio Gramsci. And his writing about the political party after the revolution, it's not a very democratic vision. You know, he talks about the party organizing society in a way, I don't, I, I think the withering away, he, he didn't take that all the way through in his vision. I imagine that with this idea of political parties having, being provisional, having term limits, being instruments of movements and struggles, probably more than one party, many parties maybe, uh, after the revolution. And I imagine, you know, there will still be workplaces, there will still be uh, domestic division of labor, private division of labor.
0: So I got a couple of questions here brewing in my mind. One is about oppression after the revolution, because as you're suggesting, what I'm hearing is that there's a particular set of unfreedoms that people experience today that we're aware of, but once we get closer to emancipation, we'll probably have revealed to us more unfreedoms that we're not even aware of today, so we need a political party that can respond to that to the ways that oppression will still emerge even in a better society. So maybe we could talk more about that. But also, I'm wondering what mechanisms do you think could be put in place to have that kind of self-constraint on political parties necessary to prevent them from becoming the authoritarian bureaucracies that we've seen or the betrayers of the people?
1: Yeah, good question. So you put it so much more eloquently than I had. Thank you. But that's right. I I I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, the history of our social struggles, even though the world gets worse in many ways, has been that we've revealed more and more unfreedoms. Right. And after the revolution with emancipation on on the horizon, more will emerge. And then probably we have to be able to have something to check new freedoms, right, that, that in, in this uh, emancipated society, right? I mean, we, we somehow have to be able to provide that. How do we build in? It's interesting. When, when I have this conversation with people, people say, look, is it about assemblies? Is it about caucuses? Is it about Soviets? And here, I'm personally reluctant. Because I, you know, in the book I talk about assemblies working very well in some places and and not others, and caucuses uh, and that kind of associational representation in some moments is, is democratizing and radical, in, in other places it freezes. So I don't know, but I I think what you said is 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 correct. I think the first task is to. Identify those kinds of mechanisms. It's hard to know. There's lots of mechanisms that come to mind for our current society and the kinds of things that we know have been helpful. Charm limits, representation of women, representation of people of color, or in some context, indigenous people, uh, as a, you know, a, that kind of built in that proportion that's useful having democratic structures, having mechanisms to assure an internal democracy in voting, having tendencies within parties, but up to a point. Uh, another thing that people talk about as useful, which I think is sort of dissociating employment in the state from struggle within the party. So we, we, one of the things that has been terrible in the Latin American examples is that if you represent a caucus or a tendency that's dominant in the party and the party wins, then you get 50 jobs in the new administration, kind of dissociating that. Another thing that we know for the current society is uh, something that happened for a long time in the Workers' Party of Brazil, which was supporting autonomous uh, movement spaces, even if those spaces are critical. So the World Social Forum was often supported by the workers party, but it was a, not a party state. It was often quite critical of the party and party officials couldn't even speak as party officials in those, those kinds of moments. But all of that is for the current society. So to return, I, I think your formulation is correct. I think it's identifying new and freedoms, serving those struggles and finding mechanisms specific to the society that we do have, assuming it's a, a society without private property. Many of the things that have been toxic for political parties now, so in capitalist societies, depending on campaign financing or the influences elites would, would presumably not be the case. But we'd have to think about, uh, this is a very difficult question. Do you have an easier one?
0: <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, this is why we have to consider, we have to have these thought experiments, right? Because uh, we often don't have the space and time to just even consider what would victory look like. Here's something I want to pose to you based on my experience working internal to unions. It's a certain paradox that I've noticed often emerges. And I, I don't know exactly how to uh, artic- phrase it, but I would say it's like the paradox of constitutionality. So when you're talking about political parties, even after the revolution, there's a need for them to be adaptable and flexible to the current circumstance. That's what I'm hearing from you. And to be able to address Oppression as it arises, and you know, put some checks and balances uh, against those forces. Now, that need to be adaptable. I think one of the things that could limit it, or it could be paradoxical, is the own internal guidelines and constitution of the political party. So, from my experience in the unions that I've worked in, a lot of times there is a constitutional bylaws, and there's like a new circumstance that emerges and what happens is people want to refer to the constitution and bylaws to address it to figure out how do we address this situation the constitution and bylaws don't really speak to it but we have to abide by the constitution and bylaws <laughs> like it kind of mutes create or it kind of stifles creativity and adaptability but then at the same time the paradox is you don't want to just throw all those rules out because you have to act in some ways accountable so how do you think the political party could address that paradox of like the need to be flexible and adaptable, but also have self-regulating guidelines at the same time.
1: I think that is the goal. In the book, I focus on on two ways people tried to answer that question in Latin America in the 80s and 90s. So one way was the, the Workers' Party of Brazil, which had a, a sort of originally a sort of federated structure. Which was this was the party where movements could speak. they built into the structure of the party lots of mechanisms of internal democracy, like uh direct uh election uh internally, instant recall funding sources for people to compete within the party. this idea of tendencies that I was talking about, which is you can have political conflict within the party that's ideological, but once. There is a, a position and it's elections and it's a sort of united front. That was one way. Of, and it, it was a very formal way. Like they erred on the side of the constitutionalism that you're talking about. It's very structured. The MAS in Bolivia, when it was founded, was already looking at the Workers' Party. And some of those people were uh, felt that the, 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 the sort of federation model was too rigid. So they wanted something more organic. And so they, they erred on the side of flexibility. So the movement toward socialism in Bolivia had many fewer of those checks. And you as a union organizer and the union folks listening can guess how both of these stories turned up. So the more constitutional version wound up sort of captured and sort of frozen and difficult to change because it was so structured. And the mass wound up overly tied, in my view anyway, to a charismatic leadership, which is also negative. And then, as both these countries had right wing backlashes, and right before the backlash, you saw some of the worst tendencies of both the Workers' Party of Brazil rigid unable to connect and really hear and be led by the movements on the street and the mass in Bolivia exhibiting really authoritarian tendencies against movements, against internal critics and around the figure of one person. So for sure, the the party has to have structure. The structure has to be nimble. And I, th- I think, you know, the more we talk about it, I feel like the, it, the parties must recognize their own provisional nature. I think the difference between a union today or a party today and a party later, is if I said to you, you know, to fix these union issues, just have a constitution that says the union will end in 10 years. But in the society that we live, we can't afford that, right? That would be a a terrible step. So we don't have that choice. So I think the the provisional nature. I would like to think that in an emancipated society, the the struggle of having of not having a political party or having the space to rethink structure is it wouldn't be life and death. You know, one of the reasons this is so vexing, as I, I was I was mentioning earlier, is that abandoning institutional struggle feels irresponsible at the moment, right? And people in sort of Bernie land, people to the left of Bernie land. Everybody feels like, you know, you can't have Trump again. But having this kind of life and death thing continues to lead us to greater and greater compromises all the time. And I guess what I like about your question about the party after the revolution is like, might we have the freedom to rethink our structures of political representation in a way that doesn't feel like if we don't sorted out exactly this minute the world will end or the right wing will win.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder about your view of power. Because as we spoke earlier before, there's a lot of skepticism on the left of political parties. And you know, I share that skepticism myself. One of the arguments posing us a big critique of political parties, I think, comes from like the anarchist wing of the socialist movement. And If I were to try to summarize it as simply as I could, I would say that it's the view that power corrupts, that the problem with the political party is that it enables a new form of power to emerge that is a corrupting force in and of itself. So what do you think of that argument? How do you think that argument applies after the revolution? There will still likely be forms of unfreedom, which means there's still likely be forms of power that emerge. How does the political party confront power without being corrupted by it at the same time.
1: I am extremely sympathetic to this more autonomous critique of political parties. It's funny. I, I meant to, I tried very hard to write a book for people on the left that spoke to more autonomous folks and more socialist folks. And sometimes it feels like I please no one. It's an unavoidable paradox. I agree that power corrupts. I agree there's this kind of bureaucratic power. The book for sure could be read as saying, look, parties develop their own interests and they stifle us and they become bureaucratized and they run away from the thing that we try to do and this is our parties not even talking about bourgeois parties. I guess the challenge of the book, the challenge to readers of the book and challenge to people in movements and is can we think of a way of having this structure of political representation, both for now and for later, that recognizes that and finds a way to check it? And, and so, you know, some of these ideas of, of being nimble, of being provisional, of the party serving a coordinating but not leading function, could that hold some of these tendencies in check? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I feel parties are unavoidable, but we need to approach them with the kind of skepticism that you're representing, that you, that you are speaking for. How do we approach the question of political party with that skepticism? So already, this is not about reforming the Democratic Party. We're talking about something else. It's, it's such a wonderful thing to take the time to think about, the, about life after the revolution. And one of the things I was thinking about a lot prompted by you was there would there be a need for political party right i for sure some people would argue no but i i do think that there will be forms of unfreedom there will be struggle parties will need to do some of the stuff that i'm talking about after the revolution which is this coordinating function helping us think helping us provide opposition against ourselves helping provide this diversity, you know, there will be political conflict. But I would like to think that after the revolution, we will have the space and time to think our structures of political representation in a way that renders them both nimble and provisional in the way that I'm talking about. Now, this is a little bit different uh, than the argument that would say, look, Having a political party after the revolution would only be introducing a form of power and unfreedom and bureaucratization uh, in a society that doesn't need it. I think the argument that I'm suggesting is, well, given that I think there will be unfreedoms and given that I think there will be healthy political struggle, hopefully we can think of structures of political representation that are not the movement that can be an instrument of movement in a way that can be nimble enough uh, so that we can recall uh, and undo them uh, if, if we thought they ran away from us. When we think about these things, and this is what I love about the series of conversations you're having, is it shows so clearly how our imagination is, is captured. So when we talk about political parties, the first thing people go to is Republicans and Democrats. Uh, The next thing people usually go to is Eastern Europe, like the the bureaucratic socialism of Eastern Europe really provides such a negative example, but it can't capture the whole thing. And now, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book about this Latin America set of examples is that I wanted to have an activist and optimistic reading of the things that work as opposed to a story about the things that didn't work.
0: Conversations that I've had, I used to talk about the political imagination as having been narrowed. That was the way I always articulated it, is like the right wing has done a tremendous job in like crushing the political imagination and narrowing it. But what I've come to recognize is actually that's not true. People are full of political imagination. It's just a bad political imagination. They're full of the political imagination of the right wing. Because only an imagination can lead people to believe that there is no alternative, right? the Thatcher uh, understanding of the world, or that these are the only kinds of parties that could possibly exist. That is, to me, a highly populated imagination. It's just one that leads people to Believe in a particular world in a, in a very specific way, so it's not a narrowed imagination. It's just a full of imagination that I guess I would say it's a syndicated TV imagination.
1: I think that's right. I, I I think that's actually such a nice way to put it. If you kind of have this conversation more deeply with people, and you take the time to be with them, and you be, you begin to even in yourself, you like where does this idea of the this kind of Boris and Natasha authoritarian. Th- where, did, where does that come from? It comes from TV. <laughs> it comes from Margaret Thatcher. It, because of this imagination, I, it makes me feel like we've lost some of the ideological battle. To give you an example, I, I use sometimes, again, where I live uh, in New York City, and, and the stuff is very present now with uh, this COVID crisis. Any person you meet can tell you all the ills of public housing. Oh, public housing just cannot work. The government run. The government can never run things. But New York is actually a failure of capitalist housing. You know, we have 200,000 homeless people and we have 300,000 empty apartments from speculation. Nobody walks past that and says, wow, you know, capitalism cannot do housing. It's so obvious. You know, our imagination always goes to this. Yeah, I think it's really... Captured and syndicated, and everybody. Uh, But ours on the left is full of this kind of common sense. That who knows exactly where we picked it up, but it's really, it's really prevalent. I, I'm I'm taking that from you. That's really wonderful, actually.
0: Before we move into how do we get there, I'm wondering if, uh, as we talked earlier, we don't want to be prescriptive and say like this is exactly the way things have to be. But I think it's interesting for folks to hear, like, what does it look like a day in the life after the revolution for you? So you get up, what does that day look like? What does the world around you look like? And how do you encounter the political party in that scenario?
1: I get up, I have some of the food that uh, Raj was describing. (laughs) Some of the sustainable, nourishing, non-GMO food. I have youngins in my household. I imagine they would be at a nice, collectively run, democratic kind of school. You know, this is the limit of my imagination. I imagine I would still be doing personally some of the same kind of work during the day that I do now, which is teaching and writing. I imagine I would spend part of my day doing some of the Collective care work that I think will be taking place. I imagined it, it's hard to know exactly what that would look like, but I, in the society, I imagine we would have a more democratic division of labor. So I would be doing some different kinds of things besides what I do now. But I, I think I, I might encounter the party in a couple of different places, not seeing myself as a party activist, but as, but as a person who works and takes care of others and it's taken care of, you know, I imagine in the cooperative where I was doing some of that work, there would be workplace issues. And there would be, as you said, forms of unfreedom uh, that we're not seeing now. And I imagine I would be, I would like to think I would be part of the collective discussion and agitation against those forms of unfreedom. And I would like to think that there were a, there was a a political structure that was helping link whatever was happening in my cooperative, whatever was happening at the school or in my workplace with other people in other workplaces no oh, here's a here's a specific example okay, I think I can give so I imagine that one of the things that we'll be struggling with in an emancipated society will be around environmental issues. I think environmental issues, uh, climate change in emancipated society will still provide the set of vexing issues that we have to figure out. And I think there would be a number of different positions on it. And, And I think the answer to those questions is, is not self-evident from now but you know for example might we as an emancipated society decide to produce and consume less and to slow down our economic activity because of climate change but there might be people who think actually in there might be some Technological fixes, or investment in infrastructure. In other words, I think those kinds of issues, once you remove private property and private interest, will still be ones that we will struggle around. And how do we square those things with workplace demand? Uh, how do we square those things with certain kinds of consumption and production? So I, I would imagine what a political party might do. Again, this radically democratic, nimble, provisional structure that's linking some of these struggles. I think some of what it would provide would be coordination across struggles. It would provide, hopefully, some different kinds of technical and scientific know how to inform our positions. Yeah, I I actually think that might be a place where a political party, that might be a good example, where a political party would provide a useful function because i think issues like that after the revolution will still yeah will we'll be vexing ones that we'll have to sort out and they will be they will be political ones in other words there will be conflict and struggle even in an emancipated society
0: so as we move into the final phase of our conversation what i like to pose to folks is how do we get there you know we often don't have the time and space to just kind of dream aloud about what a post-revolutionary society looks like, but where we do spend a lot of our time is mired, I think, in the debate of strategy and how do we get there. Um, so I'd like to give you some time and opportunity to just describe, like, how do we start building this political party today, and how do we move from now to that future where everybody has freedom.
1: First of all, we need to decide to create a political party and we need to get alignment and buy in, even if we don't know what it is. And this is a kind of like scary thing. I think we need to go into this discussion with a clear understanding that we have to create something that, that doesn't exist. And it's different. I think we need to mobilize our dissatisfaction. I think we need to bring people from different movements, Uh, we need to bring comrades from different political orientations and say, look, we need to have, we need to decide to do this. And as you, as we noted throughout the conversation, this is something people, even having this discussion is something people are skeptical about, uh, for all the reasons that we have been mentioning. I think we need to give ourselves permission to dream about a lot of things. And one of them is to really think about a structure of political representation. I think we need to do this in, in many different places. I don't think this will be the province of professors in offices telling us, uh, even if they're tied to cool magazines with great graphics. It, this is not a dictatorship of the professoriate. This is actually, we need to look around at movements and specific movements and bring them to the table and ask them, what structures work? What are structures and strategies that work when you have had to interface with the political system? And I think we need to inventory around those. And I think we need to think strategically about a couple of places to try to put some of these ideas into action. I like a lot some of the things they're doing in Jackson, Mississippi. Cooperation Jackson for me is uh, a, a very tangible, clear example of people thinking through some of these kinds of questions. Not necessarily on the same wavelength as, as the discussion we were having here, but people are very keen, very keenly aware of the limits of the political party as we imagine it. Uh, I'm tied to the housing movement. I like a lot some of the strategic thinking people are doing around this question again. And there's a recognition in housing and housing advocacy, like we need to engage this political structure. We cannot be tied to the same old electeds. People, the discussion is a matter of running candidates as independent, this kind of thing, agreeing to have the discussion, giving ourselves permission to dream big, inventorying, discussing, you know, we what works. Uh, trying this in a couple of places, um, you know I think jackson is is one powerful demonstration, but I think there need to be more places like that and I think part of it, and this is what I tried to do in the book, is to really look at some international example. People in Latin America are our fellow travelers in struggle. You know, and we need to look at the things they did and didn't do, and worked and didn't work. But as comrades, in other words, just put ourselves in—we're co-conspirators in the creation of this new world. This is the stuff they tried. This is some of the, the thinking. This is some of the critical reflection. I think one of the things that's been very nice when I was listening to your shows is that we, we precisely need the kind of conversation you are having, here, which is we need to be. Free to be critical of things and not critical of things without feeling like that's taking a position that lines you up or doesn't line you up. Having even saying what we were saying about the mass makes some people nervous because they feel like oh you're that's in in line with this talking point or that talking point. I think we need to have this kind of like pretty free discussion some of the things that, that we've been talking about about the limits of political parties need to be on the forefront of our minds all the time how can we keep the structure nimble how can we keep it accountable how can we if we manage to elect people in this current context is that a victory or is that a step is that a goal unto itself i think these are kinds of conversations that we need to have but I feel like it's this conversation is beginning to happen. And I I really hope that the skepticism that you were articulating that I hear is a really big part of that. We need to approach this skeptically.
0: And here's another question I want to pose to you before we completely conclude here. Because earlier, before we recorded, we were talking about with these emerging mutual aid networks that are being created by various organizations, how the existing bureaucrats of the state kind of interfere or can try to co-opt these things. So I'm wondering for a political party that's effective, that moves us closer to revolution, who has to be excluded from that party for that to be successful?
1: Wow, that's a great question. When we look at the history of the the political parties in the U.S., these parties are actually pretty consistent with their founding mission of representing elites, right? So I I think the first people not welcome are elites or representatives of elites. I suppose individual people of a particular you know I don't want to get into some something like that, but like representatives of elites. I think we have to be very careful of people who would want to absorb this into some already pre-existing structure. I suppose a way to think about the question is, we have to be zealous of the, in, in order for us to be nimble and to be flexible and to represent movements, but not capture them and coordinate, but not lead. We have to be very zealous. Who do we want this party to be autonomous from and who do we want it to be responsive to, right? And I think we have to be very clear that it's people's struggles and movements and unions that it's responsive to, but we want it to be autonomous from elite interest. Uh, we want it to be autonomous from existing bureaucratic formations within movements and nonprofits that we know. For sure, one of the stories that people tell, one one of the about some of these parties uh in Latin America is that the influx of middle class people in middle class intellectuals had a perverting effect. And I, I tend to think that it's it's more useful to think about autonomy and dependence and interests more than individual people's You know, we don't want to be setting a a kind of like political DNA test at the door because people do change, right? And we believe in, in people's ability to change. I think a real tricky question will emerge very soon when we start having this party discussion is what if someone wants to give a donation, right? One of the things that was vexing for these political parties in Latin America and wound up being difficult for them was this question of support. You know, do you get, is it the membership dues uh, that supports it? Is it, do we need to depend on, on public funding in a society where people, people's livelihoods wind up attached to it? And, and I suppose this is why I feel actually weirdly more optimistic about a party after the revolution than before, because a lot of that, a lot of that stuff uh, wouldn't be a question.
0: Well, as we conclude here, I just want to ask, are there any final thoughts or comments that you want to make about this conversation? First
1: of all, I, I appreciate this series of discussions very much. These are tough questions. I suppose this is the second thing I wanted to say. And like other people you've had on, I'm reluctant to be too prescriptive right? So we have to think these are thought experiments. This is the best that we can do now. But I really believe strongly that it, it won't be professors and it won't be people like me dictating this. You know, a lot of these things need to be solved in practice. It's the lived experience and lessons of people who are organized, people in movements who, who are going to be uh, guiding us here. But, and I suppose that the final thing is, even with the skepticism People should not be afraid to have a conversation about the idea of a political party. Uh, I I think one of the things you said, which was so useful, was to think about the limits of the imagination we have, because it's nourished by the only, only things that we see, and how do we think in another way.
0: Well, with that, really appreciate having you on the show. Thank
1: you so much for having me.